Our second reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 1 through 10 and 16 through 20. Listen now to what the Spirit of God is saying to us and to our church. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and sisters to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts on this your holy word be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. Easter is obviously such a special day for us at Old Pine. I'm looking out at this sanctuary, and I have to tell you, it's so nice to see such a full crowd. Now, I'm well aware that we tend to have a number of visitors on Easter that we might not see throughout the rest of the year, but I welcome you, and I have to say I'm always a little curious as to why some people who might not attend church on other Sundays choose to come to church on Easter. Now, on one level, I think it's, it's probably just that people love traditions, and Easter traditions are so wonderful. There is the spring weather, which really worked out today. There's this wonderful brass section in the choir. Everybody is dressed up. There's an egg hunt for the kids. There's lunch afterwards. You could come here and enjoy our Easter services, even if you had no interest in God. You could think that the story of the resurrection, the resurrection is nonsense, just purely a fairy tale. And I think you still might enjoy coming to church on Easter. But I suspect that tradition is not the only reason that people come here on Easter. I suspect that some people come to this service because there's a part of them that is holding out hope that maybe the story is true. I mean, maybe they're not even really conscious of that hope, but something about Easter speaks to a need within them to believe that maybe, just maybe, he really was raised from the dead. 
And so I want to address two questions today, and I think these are the most fundamental questions that any of us can ask about Easter. Number one, did it really happen? And number two, does it matter? I want you to note that those are distinct questions. For example, I might be able to persuade you that the resurrection actually did happen, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'd care. And so we really do have to establish two points. Number one, that it did happen, and number two, that it matters that it happened. In yesterday's Financial Times, there was a really great article by a journalist named Camilla Cavendish. In this op-ed, she admitted that she was an atheist, and she lamented the fact that people like her who don't believe in God are nonetheless drawn to Easter. She asked this question, she says, when we lose God, what should we do? How do we fill the void that is left when we jettison the divine from our lives? And she then, she then asked the question, should we just go shopping? And then she says that she plans to go to church on Easter despite the fact that she doesn't believe in the resurrection. This is what she writes. I am going to church ostensibly to accompany an elderly relative, but I have to admit I'm also going to go for the dose of rhythm and ritual, to sing with strangers, to be able to quietly reflect on things outside of myself. In other words, here's an atheist admitting that some part of her needs Easter to be true. And I suspect that many people today would relate to this sentiment. They, they don't really believe in the resurrection, but there's nothing else in this world that has been able to replace the desire that it is true. You know, we hear this a lot uh, when people call themselves spiritual but not religious. That's an increasingly popular way to identify oneself in our culture. And I think this basically means that people believe that something might exist out there, there might be some sort of transcendent reality out there, but, but they don't like organized religion. They don't like rules and doctrines. They certainly don't think that this book here, this, this old ancient book, could possibly have anything to say to them today. I have great empathy for these people because I used to be one of them. I used to introduce myself as spiritual but not religious. I, of course, I thought it would be nice if God were real, but I thought that this book right here just could not be literally true. It was written too long ago. It's been translated too many times. It was written too long after the eyewitnesses died. It comes from a pre-modern culture that believed in crazy things like miracles. And And I just thought, of course, now we have science and we know that miracles are impossible. Right? Here's the problem. If that is your view, then Easter becomes a metaphor. Now, it might be a good metaphor, but that's all it is. And so you might say, you know, just like flowers die in the fall and come back to life in the spring, life is a cycle of death and rebirth, and and that's what the resurrection means. It didn't really happen. The tomb was not really empty. People made up that story and a bunch of naive ancient people happened to believe it. That is the view that I accepted for many years. And then I started to actually read the Bible. And what I discovered is that the Bible does not read like a fairy tale. It reads like history. 
It's extremely concerned with objective truth. Fairy tales are always set once upon a time. But the Bible mentions specific historical events. And so just as an example, Luke starts his gospel this way. In the time of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Wait a minute. These are real historical people. This sounds like a, a history. Luke continues, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Wait a minute. This doesn't read like a fairy tale. C.S. Lewis, who was one of the world's leading authorities in mythological writings, said this, He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know what they are like. The Gospels are not like that. But we could go further because maybe you say, okay, you know, the Gospel writers were concerned with truth, but that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth. I mean, maybe they wanted to record the facts, but they just had their facts wrong. Okay, let's look at that. It turns out that there's another aspect of the Bible that may be even more powerful evidence of its trustworthiness, and it's the fact that the Bible not only contains a lot of accurate historical information, it also contains elements that would never have been included if the Bible were merely propaganda. And let me explain. I think this is very interesting. A lot of ancient texts are to some extent propaganda. They're biased. They always try to make their side look really good. They include positive things about their people and negative things about whoever they don't like. But the New Testament is interesting in that it contains a lot of information that was extremely embarrassing to early Christians. Now, when historians find that a story is embarrassing to the people who wrote it and shared it and believed in it, they say, well, you know, that's actually pretty big evidence that this story is probably true. Because, you see, nobody would make up evidence that makes their side look bad. And there's even, a def- there's even a term for this in historical scholarship. It's called the criterion of embarrassment. The more embarrassing a text is for the people who wrote it, the more historians say this is probably a pretty trustworthy ancient source. Now, here's what you need to know. The story of the resurrection contains an enormous amount of information that was embarrassing to early Christians. Let me tell you a few of them. Number one, who were the first eyewitnesses? In all four of the Gospels, the first people to go to the empty tomb, the first people to encounter the risen Christ were women. Why does that matter, you might ask? Because in the ancient world, women were not thought to be reliable witnesses. The law said that women could not testify in trials because women were emotional and hysterical. They couldn't be relied on to describe facts accurately. In fact, one of the early critics of the church was a Greek writer named Celsus, and his main argument is that Christianity can't be true because it was founded on the stories of, in in his words, deluded women. 
So here's my question. If you were an early follower of Jesus and you were setting out to create a story that you kind of knew wasn't true, but you wanted to convince people that it was true, would you base your entire story on the testimony of women? No, you wouldn't. Which means there's really only one possible reason why this embarrassing fact would be included in all four Gospels, because it's true. It's not a metaphor. It happened. Number two, Matthew tells us that in the days after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples on a mountain in Galilee. You'll probably remember this part of the reading. He appears to the disciples, and Matthew says that some of them worshiped him, but some doubted, which is an astonishing detail. Why would Matthew tell us this? Why would he tell us that some of the disciples, the people who knew Jesus best, couldn't believe what they were seeing? I mean, wouldn't it be better propaganda if he said, the risen Christ came to them and everybody believed? Everybody was certain that it was indeed true. And so there's only one reason why Matthew included this embarrassing detail, because it happened. Because the resurrection was so strange that for some people, seeing was not believing. But when you think about it, isn't this actually more believable? Put yourself in their shoes. If Christ appeared to you, would you immediately say, oh, I'm glad you're here. I was kind of expecting you. I think you'd probably say, what is going on? Am I losing my mind? Am I hallucinating? Am I dreaming? You would doubt your own experience. And so for Matthew to admit that some of the disciples actually doubted helps us to understand that this was a real experience. It's not a fairy tale. He's sharing the facts as accurately as he can. Now finally, there's the most embarrassing detail of them all, and that's the crucifixion itself. The idea that a Messiah could be killed in this way was by far the most embarrassing thing And it was the most difficult thing for ancient people to believe. It simply made no sense that an all-powerful God would be defeated like this at the hands of the Romans, that he would be stripped naked and shamed and humiliated publicly. And again, there's only one rational explanation for why this is present in all of the Gospels. Because it happened. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you are intrigued by some of these historical ideas, I hope you'll come talk to me. I can share a lot of really fascinating recent scholarship that is suggesting that the Bible is a lot more historically reliable than a lot of us used to think. But we need at this point to get to the more important question. Why does any of this even matter? I mean, let's just say that you become convinced that the resurrection, you know, maybe it actually happened. You know, maybe life is stranger than I thought, more mysterious than I thought. Maybe God might really be the kind of God who could do something so unexpected like raising Jesus from the tomb. It still leaves us with what I think is the more important question, what difference does that make to your life? And this question actually has a relatively straightforward answer. In fact, it can be boiled down to one word, and that word is hope. Because if the resurrection happened, then there is reason to hope, and if it didn't happen, then hope itself is a fairy tale. I have to admit that when I was younger, I thought maybe metaphors could give people hope. I mean, we have this beautiful symbol of dying and rising. Maybe that is enough 
for a desperate person to have some hope in their life. And then I spent a year as a hospital chaplain. And I found out that that's not true. Because I sat with people as they received news that their diagnosis was terminal. And so I got to watch people prepare to die. And what I learned is that people don't put hope in metaphors. People only put hope in other people. It's as simple as that. People don't hope in ideas. They don't hope in concepts or abstractions. What they hope for is a person who will love them unconditionally and who will never leave them. And so all of these people in the hospital showed me that their hope is in the idea that Jesus really is alive. In, in reality, not as a symbol, that he died for them because he loves them and was raised for them and intervenes in their lives in real ways, both now and in the future. And it was that relationship with a real person that gave them hope, that allowed them to face their final days. And so I'm here to tell you that what Easter offers you is not a story, it's not a tradition, it's, it's something far more powerful. It's a person. It's God made flesh. It is the love of Christ that can make you come alive. It's this relationship that is the reason for hope. Now, I know that might sound fanciful. Maybe you're just too cynical to believe in something that good. Well, that's okay. I mean, I think that's a pretty honest place to start. And I know that God can meet you in your cynicism because he met me in my cynicism. But I also know that at a certain point, you're going to face a moment in which you're going to have to take the risk to either trust or not to trust. And that means believing in something that you don't fully understand. But here's the wonderful thing. You don't have to do this alone. This is my final point today. There's a really fascinating part of this passage from Matthew that I think doesn't get enough attention. You might remember at the very end of our reading, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, I want you to remember I am with you until the end of the age. Here's what most people don't know. He's using the Greek plural form of the word you. He's not saying, Peter, I am with you on an individual level, and James, I'm with you in a separate kind of individual level. He is saying, I'm with all of you. I am with you as the body of Christ. I am with you as a community. Now, part of the problem is that we don't have, in the English language, a separate plural form of you. And so it's kind of hard to translate this passage, but I'm here to help you because I come from the South, and we invented... We invented a really effective word for the plural you. It's called y'all. Thank you. Well, there's another one because we're pretty sophisticated down there. We also have a term that we use when we want to be really inclusive, and that's called all y'all. And so if I were translating this passage and I wanted to be really accurate to what Jesus said, here's what I would have him saying. Remember, I am with all y'all until the end of the age. And I promise you this would fundamentally change your understanding of Easter because here's what it would mean. You're not gonna find Jesus by yourself. You need other people in your life to show you love, to help carry your burdens, to challenge you when you are lost in selfishness and egotism, to get you out of your head and into the real world. All the things we do in church we don't get together because we love organized religion. 
We get together because we recognize that we can't do it alone. That although the church is not perfect, it is necessary. And I think this is the tragic mistake that a lot of people make when they say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, is that there's no community there. Because the whole point of that identity is to avoid organized religion. And so it means people try to, try to find God by themselves. And maybe they take a little bit from Eastern traditions and a little bit of Western traditions and a little bit of self-help, self-help psychology. And they create this individual faith for themselves. But Jesus said, I am with all y'all. Meaning if you want to find me, you got to get together with other people. And in the hard work of love, you will find me. Not as an idea, but as a real person whom you can relate to, who loves you so much that he died for you. And so friends, I pray that this is not the last time we'll see you in church. Easter is certainly a highlight of the year, But the real work of love, the stuff that actually changes you over time, is what happens in all the other days of the year, all of the weeks between Easter and Christmas when we live out our faith together. Let's end in prayer. Holy God, we thank you for the hope of Easter. In the great mystery of salvation, we pray that we will find you the person who loves us. Shape us into the people of God that together we can live out your truth. In Christ we pray, amen.